0: Well, tonight we, <clears throat> we gather to talk about the persecuted church. We gather to think about brothers and sisters who we've just heard about who were burned at the stake, in fact, for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what I want to talk about in John 15, if you have your Bibles, grab uh, them and turn to the 15th chapter of the Gospel of John. <clears throat> And we're going to see here, before we really start talking about persecution, we need a running leap into the Gospel of John, chapter 15, because we need to better understand what's going here before we talk about persecution, before Jesus gets his men ready to suffer, And so we need to know that John 15 is spoken hours before Jesus is is going to be arrested and put on trial and killed. John 13, verse one, teaches that it's the Passover and Jesus says that his time has come. And then we hear about Jesus in all of John 13 talking about I'm going away soon. And to say exactly, John 13, 36 says, where I go, Jesus says, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Jesus is clear and speaking openly that he is leaving. Now put yourself in this situation as one of the disciples of Jesus. You've been with him for three years. He's loved you perfectly. He's corrected you when you needed it. You've seen miracles done by him. He's even served you. You are convinced that he's the long-awaited Messiah in the Old Testament. You have to put yourself in this situation and realize the heartbreak. And Jesus often tells his men, don't be sad. Put yourself in this situation. I mean, think about it. And think about someone that is so dear to you That you think of them leaving and it would break your heart. And then think about when I say leaving, that they're going to die. Think about that. I mean, now Jesus is saying he's going back to the Father and that he will come back, and yet it doesn't even register with you the heartbreak. And yet here he does say the promise in John 14, 6, that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through him. So there is this assurance and yet the heartbreak is just too much and it's like you don't even listen. So this is the situation we have in John 15. And we see that, he's, he, that Jesus is so concerned about his men, even though we know that he's just about to be betrayed and we, he's just about to be killed. And yet he says in verse, or chapter 16, verses one and two, he says these words, these things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcast from the synagogues. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the father or me. So even though Jesus is so close to death, his focus is on his men and preparing them for what's to come. And we know that because tradition tells us that 11 of the 12 men died a martyr's death and John died of old age and he was boiled in oil so he still suffered tremendously and yet jesus he's about to take the wrath of god on himself and he's focused on prepping his men and so here we see in john 15 verses 1 through 11 you're familiar with this jesus is the vine and his followers are the branches warren weersby writes describing what it means that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, to keep in fellowship with Christ so that his life can work in and through us to produce fruit. This certainly involves the word of God and the confession of sin so that nothing hinders our communion with him, end quote. And I think that's exactly what's going on here in the big picture. This is, this is essentially the relationship between Jesus personally with each of the men, abiding in him, resting in him. They must recognize that they have to look for Jesus for their strength. They must abide in him. And that abiding in Christ also means obedience to him. And he says this in verses 10 and 11, where he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I've kept the father's commandments, abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is all about reliance on Jesus. And think for a moment, who else do you want to rely on or abide in? I mean, really? Jesus, the son of God, the good shepherd, John chapter 10, who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is amazing, is he not? This only builds up as we talk about suffering for his sake, that these men had to abide in him. And then we turn to John chapter 15, verses 12 through 17, just giving an overview before we get into this. And now Jesus then moves from teaching on personal relationship with him and bearing fruit to the relationship between the disciples and the importance of loving one another. Verse 12 says this, This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. And so we see here that Jesus is commanding them that they must love one another. And what's so eye-opening here also is that verse 13 says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus calls his own men, you are my friends if you do what I command you. And so we see that Jesus calls them friends and we know that Jesus is about to lay his life down for them. And yet, we, maybe we, we skip over this because we read over it, but just the closeness between the disciples and Jesus here. He just called them friends. And in verse 16, he also says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. And so Jesus affirms Remember, men, I chose you out of the world. I chose you. You didn't choose me. The closeness we need to remember. We need to remember that Jesus is about to die. And that puts it into context of, of we need to abide in him and that we need to love one another. He's prepping his men for him leaving. And that had to have been an encouragement. As you think about Jesus saying, remember, you didn't choose me, I chose you. That had to encourage them later as they as they are. And we're gonna to continue to see that. And so this is a running start. And the reason that I did this is because His disciples are going to be killed. We see that at the end of John. Peter says, or Jesus tells Peter that you're going to go somewhere where you don't want to go and stretch out your arms. And it says that he signifies what kind of death he would glorify God by. But this passage now that we're getting to is looking forward. Because the disciples aren't in persecution right now. They're not quite yet there. And so he's telling his men, men, you need to know these things. And by extension, brothers and sisters, we need to know these things. We need to know why persecution comes. We need to know why in Iraq right now Christians are being killed. Or, this past Easter, while we sang here, over 70 Christians in Pakistan were killed celebrating the risen Lord. And so, Jesus is teaching here, and by extension, we need to know these things. We need a foundation for when suffering comes. We need to be able to look to the word of God, and I hope that as we look at it, I can encourage my heart and we can encourage our hearts to be prepared. And so now turn with me into our text, which is John 15, 18 through 25. And I'm going to read it. Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know, or it could be translated, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. So this forms our text for this evening. And I bet you can tell why as we read through that. And so let's pick it apart and see just what we find of why does the world and why do people hate Christians? Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know, or like I said before, know that it has hated me before it hated you. The world here, again, is not talking about geography. And I talked about this when I, when I gave a, my last sermon on salt and light. We're talking about the sinful world system. When the sinful world system hates the disciples, Jesus comforts them with the, world, with the word or that the world hated me before it hated you. Don't be surprised, men. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me. And in light of what we just read in John 15 about abiding in Christ, this has to encourage the disciples. They shouldn't really, I mean, it should be a normal thing. They should expect it even. Because they were there when the Pharisees hated Jesus and when they said that he was born of fornication and when they hated him, right? And they tried to kill him and he eluded their grasp, it says often. So he's encouraging disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Look at the reason that we find in this passage about why the world hates the disciples. Jesus teaches here that his disciples are not of the world and the world loves its own. So then if the world loves its own and Jesus says you're not not part of them, then you're going against the world, against the sinful world system. Notice next that Jesus again talks about him choosing his disciples out of the world. And that is the reason that the world hates them. First of all, they're not part of the world. And second of all, it says, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. And we know that Ephesians chapter one, three through six, teaches that the father chooses people for his glory, for salvation. And so we see this cooperative work of the Trinity right here, basing the world, or basing the world, hating the disciples because Jesus chose them out of the world. And so what are some characteristics of the sinful world? Listen to Romans 1, 28 through 32. And I know this passage is on people suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, but I think it's helpful to see what the world is like. Listen in. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper "...being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death that not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So that's what the world is like. Verse 31, this is just a snippet. Untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Certainly Christians can be this, but it should never characterize their life. Christians, we should be exact opposite. Now the world hates that we don't conform to what it teaches though. Because we're not that way, the world, we're just swimming upstream and they hate it. We instead live a new life for Christ. We abide in him because he chose us out of this wicked world. Knowing this, brothers and sisters, the world hates because of Jesus. And I would be as bold to say that if it wasn't for Jesus, none of us would be living this way at all. We would be just like the world. We see clearly in these two verses, the reason for hate is nothing beside Jesus himself. I mean, look back at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. So Jesus was hated first and then you were hated. And then it says, but I chose you out of the world, verse 19, because of this, the world hates you. So Jesus is this deciding factor. So then the question becomes, why does Jesus choosing his own of the world create such hatred? When Jesus chooses us out of the world, we live not according to what the sinful world system advocates. Listen to 1 Peter 4 and remember that 1 Peter is written to a bunch of churches who are suffering persecution. Verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties and abominable idolatries and all this they or the world are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In not doing what the world encourages to do, these people are maligned or spoke evil against. So when Jesus' when Jesus's followers go against the world, the world hates it. And if you've been in a secular job, you know this. You know that people make fun of you because you don't drink and you don't party. They malign you, they make fun of you. You are chosen out of the world. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus here is saying, remember what I said to you before. Jesus in these first two verses saying, that if the world hates you, no, it hated me first. And since I chose you out of the world, they hate you. You're not of this world. You are mine. Remember then, a slave is not greater than his master. Jesus says this same phrase in John 13, 16 through 17, referring to washing one another's feet. I'm sure you guys know this story, but Jesus girds himself and he takes the form of the lowest slave, stoops down and washes his disciples' feet. And then he teaches this, that if you call me master and Lord, and, and I wash your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. That's where the same phrase about, uh, at the end it says, a slave is not greater than his master. The same thing. So here in our passage, we see that no man is greater than his master, and we know that, his ma- that our master is Jesus. And so if they persecuted him, they will, they will also persecute you, and that we will enter into the suffering. We're not greater than Jesus. So if he suffered, we will suffer. And this is so important. Remember what I said at the beginning of this, of this passage, that it's preventative. That's why Jesus is repeating himself. Remember, disciples, when all this happens. Tell me, though, brothers and sisters, isn't this amazing? Our salvation is not dependent upon us. He chooses us out of the world. And then we enter into his sufferings. We abide with him. We, we are like Christ. When we are so in love with someone, what do we want to do? And my wife makes fun of me because sometimes I just, honestly, I follow her around. She's, she's walking around, I mean, just trying to get things done. And I'm just following her around. And I just hinder it all the time. I do. I mean, we want to enter in whatever they're doing. I want to do that too. And yet here, sometimes we don't like these words. We get to enter in like our master and Lord and suffer with him. I don't know about you, this makes me a little uncomfortable even to say from here, but I want to do whatever Jesus does. And so if I, if I need to suffer, I want to enter into that suffering. And at the end of this verse, there's a positive though too. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. If they listen to Jesus, and we know that people throughout scripture have in the gospels that they were disciples of Jesus, and yet they weren't willing to because they were afraid of the Jews or something that we find. But if they listen, if they listen to me, they'll listen to you as well. Now, verses 21 through 25 or a bit of a transition because Jesus now discloses that the world is unwilling to submit to the one true God. Jesus now describes how he has come, spoken, and did works only that the father could do, and yet still they hate him and the father. Now look at verse 21. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. All these things, this persecution and hatred of the disciples, here the people persecuted for Jesus' namesake. Now, what does it mean that they persecuted for Jesus' namesake? And we are so connected with Jesus that we're found in him, right? So we promote and we live everything that he taught and lived out. We want to be like him. So, verse 21 again. They will do this for my namesake because they don't know the one who sent me. The teaching here is so key to remember, brothers and sisters, the persecutors don't know God. They don't. And here's the saddest part of the text. If you have a heart for lost people of this world, it breaks your heart. I mean, I can remember being on campus and I'm sure you guys have been on campus the street preachers out there preaching, preaching the good news that there's forgiveness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's people all around them yelling and hurling insults at them. And I just started weeping. I wept for them. These people don't know God. So our hearts should break for them. They are hating us as Christians, but we need to realize not to be angry back, but to weep and plead that they would know him. He is greater than anything this world has. The one true God, the only God, who we serve is described in Psalm 86, 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. The reality is these people that they don't know God The problem is a relationship with God the Father and Jesus whom whom he sent. So don't be afraid of persecution as if you're doing something wrong. Realize that if they hated Jesus, that they'll hate you also. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus came to this earth and it says that he spoke the truth of God and lived it before people. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came and because the verse talks about sin, we recognize that he was exposing sin. He was also proclaiming that unless you believe or trust in him, you're lost. And in this verse, when it says that they would not have sin, this doesn't mean that they, are, that they would have been, if Jesus wouldn't have come, living in sinless perfection. That's not at all what he's saying. What Jesus is communicating is that though they were following, they thought they were following God, but in reality they were not. They have no excuse for not turning to the true God. And how many times do we read in the Gospels, Jesus confronting the religious leaders we see him correcting them often. I think about John 8. Jesus is going back and forth with the religious leaders. Jesus saying, I am from above, you are from below. They call him that, that he was born of fornication and at the end, they want to stone him because he says, before Abraham was, I am the name of God, right? That he is God. So Jesus came explaining who God is. John one eighteen says, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father. He has thoroughly explained him. So Jesus came living and explaining God the Father. The people have no excuse for their sin. Jesus exposed and showed the way and also invited to people to come to him for salvation, but the people rejected it. Look at verse 23. He who hates me hates my Father also. This is not a new connection between Jesus and his father. We see that in John 5, 17 through 18. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So this isn't new. Now we see again, Jesus connecting himself with the father. This is just one example He who hates me hates my father also. People cannot say that they love God if they don't love Jesus. It can't happen. And that is so crucial for us to know. Because religious people will get angry at us. But if they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. Look at verse 24. It says, if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both <clears throat> seen and hated me and my father as well. And so now we see this transition from Jesus came and spoke to now what Jesus did, his works, right? And so we see that they hated Jesus and the Father. Jesus over and over again in the scriptures says, if you're not going to believe me, believe at least the works that I've done. So Jesus equating himself with the works of the Father that they have no excuse. And John ten thirty seven through 38 says this, If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that they may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Again, we see here that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus. They work so closely together. And so we see that these people have no excuse. Jesus came and spoke. Jesus did works that no one else could have done. And yet they've hated him and the father. Now look at verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is in their law. They hated me without a cause. These people hated Jesus for no reason at all. And that's still true today. In fact, the most loving, righteous man ever exposed them to such a degree that they hated him without a cause. And I don't need to tell you how many times we see that in the Gospels, that they hated him because he was drawing other people away from them, when really, if they would love God, they would have accepted Jesus. And so, Jesus describes how they rejected him. And so in conclusion, we see, so why does the world hate Jesus' disciples? Number one, the world hates Jesus, so it makes sense that he's going to hate his followers. And number two, people, they don't know the true God. So what about us on campus, at MSU and at work? The same things apply. As we live godly in this present age, that itself is exposing because we're not going, we're not being conformed to what this world teaches. When we say that marriage is between man and a woman, we're called bigots. We're going to get pushback. And again, I'll say it again, the religious people are often the ones that we get the most pushback from. Salvation is in Christ alone. Try that one. So as you share the truth with them and your life, remember, don't get angry. Jesus over and over again appeals to people to trust in him. Believe in me. We get to enter into Jesus' suffering. He picked us. He chose us out of this world. We're not greater than our master. And so again, I'm going to read chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. You may be outcasts. You may be killed for living for Christ. But remember this. Remember the teaching that Jesus gave his men. We should expect that if Jesus suffered, we will, ought, we will too, and that they don't know God. Don't think that you're doing it wrong. But another warning, that if you're suffering and if you're being ridiculed for not being like Christ, don't call it persecution. Don't call it persecution, if you're not living as Christ would live, if you're not compassionate. If you're just abrasive all the time, if people don't like you, you, don't call it persecution. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you prepped your men for persecution and what that meant. That we shouldn't expect different because you suffered. And God, even though it's scary, we want to enter into everything that you did and so if that means suffering, God, I pray that our hearts would be willing to enter in with you as we abide in you. And God, that our, heart, our hearts would break because we recognize those that hate you. The reality is that they don't know you. They don't know your kindness. They don't know your compassion. They don't know that forgiveness is found in you. So help us to rethink persecution. Help us to be reminded that you went through it, that you can identify with it, that if we're outcasts, if if we get people that speak evil against us, that you also did and you can identify with us. Thank you. Thank you that you are so kind to us. To you be the glory forever and ever. And the church said, amen.